Welcome to the Theory of DFS podcast. I'm Jordan Cooper, aka Blender Ed, Blender HD on Twitter. I'm the co-author of the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports, How to Think Like a Professional DFS Player. It's a 15-hour DFS audio masterclass you could find at theoryofdfs.com. It applies to any sport. I know we got NFL going on now, NBA coming back in December, college football, that's happening, right? You always got esports, you got PGA, uh, MLB when it comes back. It is the it is the broad-based game theory of DFS, all the concepts that you can apply to become a long-term profitable player. Go check it out, theoryofdfs.com. We don't have Eric Beimfor here for this episode because uh, it's Thanksgiving week. And if you're in the fantasy football space, that's almost like double work because you have the Thanksgiving slate that everyone loves to play. The three games, you know, where uh, b- between the second and third game, you're probably passed out on the couch. So uh, so make sure to set an alarm for your late swaps for that. But uh, I-, I managed to rustle up a guest. Uh, you, you may you may see him around the industry. He does uh, college football content. He's at uh, awesomeo.com. He does a show with Kyle Dvorak at uh, Roto Underworld Radio. I'm, I'm, I may be, I may actually be missing some of the content that you do, but it's Matt Gajeski. Did did is that is that all do you do, or 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 am I missing a podcast or a show that I just don't happen to watch? I do a lot on YouTube myself, mostly in the realm of college sports, but that's just on my own. Most of the work I do written is at Osmo, so I think you hit everything. And we'll include uh, we'll include a link to, to, to your Twitter out there. Uh, we, we came off a, a slate that this past week, uh, which was, I think, more unique to NFL than I've seen in the past couple of years. Uh, and I'm not talking about on FanDuel. Obviously, on FanDuel, we had uh, the whole situation of a quarterback uh, playing in the tight end position and tight end being a wasteland and Taysom Hill being nearly minimum price. Like that's this whole se- separate type of like game theory type of situation. But on DraftKings, typically in GPPs, you know, we have the the three levers of DFS when we play. We have projection, we have correlation, and we got leverage. Now, the number one correlation in a lineup especially in GPPs, if you want to increase your variance, is at quarterback. Quarterback to wide receiver. Like, everyone knows that correlation because a passing touchdown, both players get points. But we had a slate where the best projected point-per-dollar and salary-adjusted value at quarterback was Taysom Hill at 4800 He had, obviously, his projects well because of his expected rushing floor as well as rushing ceiling his touchdown equity but in a in a game that based if you projected it I mean obviously the Saints you know they kind of they ran the same offense that they would with Breeze I mean Taysom Hill still got 51 yards rushing and two rushing touchdowns but for the most part you kind of saw just the short passing game there but in in projections I mean, it accounted primarily for a low passing volume, high rushing volume, high rushing equity game, which means his teammates project fairly poorly in the context of an 11-game slate. So, like, I played 120 GPP lineups, and while I played Taysom Hill in cash, because from a value perspective, he rated as the number one quarterback, but from a ceiling perspective... Pairing him up with the $7,300 Michael Thomas, 
uh, didn't seem didn't seem like that was the route to a ceiling. Uh, Kamara being nine K plus didn't seem like a route to a ceiling. Of course, you could have paired him with a Cook or a Sanders because at least your your the, the salary make makes sense. He doesn't have to score a million points, but in my builds, like I valued the correlation much more. So, so much that like, I literally X'd out that game from my player pool saying that there's, there's, there's a limited chance on an 11 game slate that a Saints Falcons, like two plus one, three plus one, even, even just a regular old two plus zero type of stack. Like it wasn't, it wasn't worth it because every other piece in that game projected so poorly other than the quarterback. I made the exact same decision as you in tournaments. I completely X'd out the game, played zero Taysom Hill in GPPs, and it was all for the same reasons. And then you start factoring in the ownership of Taysom Hill. I'm not sure what contest. You usually play the $9 slant, right, Jordan? I mean, that's the main contest, but I mean, I play the $3 play action with 20 entries. Like, I'm not someone that builds 150 and then puts, like, into all, like, I make unique entries for everything. But I mean, the main GPP I focus on for large field is uh is the nine dollars? I'll play. I'll play. Obviously, hand build some power sweep and spy lineups, things like that. But if I'm gonna focus on one GPP, it's gonna be that nice flat payout structure, two x min cash, nine dollars slant on DraftKings. Yeah, I've listened to a lot of your shows with Eric this year. You guys have talked a lot about trying to predict ownership across the different contests. I only played seventeen GPP lineups. Part of that is just you know my workload. It's hard for me when I can. I will run one fifty, but doing college football and everything, sometimes on Sunday, it's just not feasible for me to run that many lineups, at least well. So I ran 17. I played a five-entry max. It's the $33 entry. It's called the three-point stance. And Taysom Hill was 16% owned, which was a little lower than I thought. I tried to go back and think about how I would have handled this had I known Taysom Hill was going to be 16% because I thought he would be, we're talking DraftKings specifically, I thought he would come in higher owned than that, which was another reason why I decided to get off the entire game alongside the correlation. Right, because I'm looking through a lot of uh, sharp players' lineups and results DB, and there there were some people that went with that correlation. That's like, I'm going to play Taysom Hill, I'm going to play Michael Thomas, I'm going to play Kamara, I'm going to play that game, run it back with Julio or Ridley, which, I mean, was viable. I mean, I, I absolutely believe it, but in, like, in most projections, like that that doesn't project to be one of the, the better stacks on the slate. But the interesting thing is that we all, we typically talk about naked quarterbacks, right? We talk about guys like Lamar and Cam Newton and Kyler Murray, where they have so much upside on their feet, and their then typically their touchdown equity is is negatively correlated to every member of their team. Like you play Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins, like at those salaries. Like, Kyler's touchdowns really limit the ceiling of DeAndre Hopkins. And Lamar Jackson, when when Marquise Brown and Mark Andrews are expensive, uh, I, I think Marquise Brown probably should be coming down in salary. I think everyone's living off the Ponzi scheme of, like, two games from last year. Uh, still. But we talk about, can you play X quarterback naked? Now, in, in, in most slates, I don't. Because the quarterbacks we're talking about are expensive. Like, we're talking about a, a Lamar from last year when he would be 7500 1000 8000 We talk about Josh Allen. We talk about Kyler Murray. 
We even talk about Cam Newton and Deshaun Watson. Sometimes they get up $6,500 to $7,000 range where because of their salary, they, they, ha- they need a higher ceiling. Like 24 points isn't their ceiling. Like you need 30 plus. And then their ceiling is so negatively correlated to expensive receivers on their team that it's hard for both of them to get there. So you consider, well, maybe Lamar, maybe Kyler, maybe Josh Allen, maybe these guys are end up being QB1 on the slate. Like maybe they are the highest scoring quarterback, but none of their other players get there. So there's value in large field GPPs to play that quarterback naked. I choose not to because of the price, but we have a slate this past slate where Taysom Hill was 4,800. He ended up scoring, what, 20, 25 points? He wasn't QB1. We had Watson at 34 points. We had Herbert at 30 points. Obviously, uh, much easier stacking partners to get there. Herbert with Allen, Watson with Cooks and Fuller. I mean, the stack didn't get there for Watson, but it did for Herbert. That uh, did we overlook constructions, even though Taysom Hill was the most, the highest owned uh quarterback but in the in the slant he was only 12 percent owned i mean typically we don't we don't look at quarterback as a place to get leverage because there's only one you can only play one of them they're typically tied to wide receivers and pass catchers so like the ownership in and of itself you're not like well i'm gonna play uh pj walker over Taysom hill as naked like no you're most likely playing robbie anderson or dj moore curtis samuel in that lineup so that makes sense to do that but in these naked Taysom lineups Did we overlook the fact of since we're so used to and programmed into correlation increases the variance of your lineups and get you a clearer path to first place that I'm not saying that we should make uncorrelated lineups, but what if I would have ran my projections better with stack settings that included a naked naked Taysom and then inserted two secondary correlations in that lineup. It's something that I didn't run because I didn't get, I just thought Taysom Hill's expensive. All the other pieces of the game just don't, I'm weighing the projection now. So those three, like projection, correlation, leverage, it's like I'm, I'm siding with projection here. I'll play him in cash, not going to play him in GPP. Do you, th- do you think that, that we overcompensated the fact that this was a more low scoring slate? The top total was only 51 points. The bottom was 45. It, it, I mean, like the winning lineups for GPPs were like in the high, you know, 180s, 190s. We didn't see a 250 type of score. Do, 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 you, do you think that we, we overvalue projection here in, in, in favor of correlation when we shouldn't have? I'm not necessarily sure that we did. I think the main error for me came in ownership, trying to factor in Taysom Hill's overall ownership in this contest, being a higher dollar tournament. I thought he would come in higher than 16.4% ownership. I come from a background in college football primarily. That's where I get most of my volume in DFS over the course of a week. And in college football, we see a, a lot just different style game. There's more just pure rushing quarterbacks, quarterbacks that struggle to throw the ball. So we do have players like Taysom Hill who get a majority of their production on the ground. In college football, instead of correlating primarily with a pass catcher in that situation, I'm usually trying to correlate in some form or another with the other side of the game. Maybe it's, you know, if they're not just a one-off in their team running a, a secondary correlation, maybe it's a quarterback correlated with a wide receiver on the opposing side. 
I think maybe that could have worked here. With Taysom Hill being so cheap on DraftKings in particular, I mean, looking at his range of outcomes, it's not too surprising to me to see him at least get up to the, you know, the 25-point threshold. In the context of the lower-scoring slate, I think perhaps we did overlook him a little bit, but I think for me it mainly came in the form of ownership. Right, you you expected, I mean, I, I projected Taysom to be about 20% owned. So, yeah, and he was he was close to that, but 16.4, I still feel like is a little low for him. Right, especially being that he projects as the highest quarterback value on the slate. But I think I still think in GPPs, we we may have we may have overestimated his ownership just due to the fact that the stacking partners, like everyone would, it's one of those things where where especially in a, a contest like the nine dollar slant, where a lot of sharp players enter 150 lineups. Like the Millie has a lot more entries in comparison to 150 maxers, and I'm not a 150 maxer. I, th- I think I played 87 lineups in the $9 slant. But the $9 slant has like 50,000 entries versus 200,000 entries in the milli that because of the proportion of people that play the slant are opto bros, if you want to call it, you know, use a Pete Overzet term, uh, that like based on our our traditional, you know, long-term thinking on how to build plus EV lineups, which involves multiple ways of correlation, that... There was no projection system. I looked around the industry. No projection system had Mike Michael Thomas being like a better better raw play than Keenan Allen or Devontae Adams or, or or I mean maybe slightly above Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley, but like you could get the same amount of points from like the six K wide receivers. I think Deontay Johnson projected better than Michael Thomas for for fourteen fourteen hundred dollars cheaper, and then Kamara was like decimated in projection because he's so expensive and his and his rushing equity was just his his touchdown equity was just destroyed that like if if you were building just based on projections like how like would you would you if you forced in quarterback correlation like you'd never get Taysom Hill right you'd I mean you'd you'd have to come to your like 500th lineup in order to get there uh but that's only if you're that's only if you're forcing the correlation. So if you're not forcing the correlation, I went back uh yesterday and and reran my my projections uh for 300 lineups and I took out the that it had to be a quarterback with at least one wide receiver with something. I put a I put 100% on all the stack types and it's like it's okay to have Taysom Hill in there as a one-off and then still get secondary correlations. And I saw, like, in the top 100, there were, half of those lineups were Taysom Hill naked lineups that have higher median projections, even with the secondary correlations. And because I didn't run that on Saturday when I build my lineups, like, I I just, I I think it was a mistake. It doesn't matter whether or not what, what lineup won the contest. I mean, I we're not, Matt, we don't go by, you know, just the results of one slate. I think from an overall perspective, you're you're gonna have a higher you're gonna have a higher ROI building, you know, three plus one, two plus one, those types of stacks for large field GPPs. But this was a unique slate where if Taysom Hill, for instance, was sixty two hundred, it would still make him a decent value on the slate. But like in cash games, I probably would have still I with the ambiguity of the situation, I probably would have played Watson over him. Right for 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 a couple hundred more and Newton over him for a couple hundred more. 
So do you think that uh, the the reason why the medium projection lineups with him that we didn't consider because we automatically, you did it for leverage, I did it for correlation, but neither of us did it for projection. I ran it for projection and it's like, well, here, the top optimal based on any stack size is a naked Taysom lineup. Like any correlative lineup that I make without Taysom has a medium projection of one or two points less. Like all of my Herbert lineups projected median two points less. All of my Watson lineups, all of my, like the Watson lineups come up high because of the Jacoby Myers projection with the run back on the other side and, and Brandon Cooks having, having is projected well, but, but like everything else, like the Taysom naked lineups actually had higher medians. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to chalk it up to like, I question the ceiling. Like I was like, okay, great. Median wise. It's the same reason why I, I, I was under on the Texans and Patriots game because I thought they all projected well, but they also all were going to be owned. And I think they were safe ways for median, but not necessarily. I thought the game environment didn't, wasn't good for ceiling. So that's why I was way under on that game. But do you think that sometimes that, uh, we pull the correlation and leverage handles a little too much and on certain slates, we need to take a little bit more into account and at least compare. Because I think my mistake is not not playing Taysom Hill naked lineups. Like, I probably would have ended up not playing naked Taysom Hill lineups. My mistake was not even considering them. Like, not even, not even going like, well, let me just run these lineups. I mean, I normally don't run naked quarterback lineups, so it's not in my standard builds. So would you consider that... Even even if you wanted to fade him for ownership, and I wanted to fade him for correlation, do you think as part of our process that on unique slates like this, we should get out of our comfort zone from a long-term EV perspective and say, what makes this slate unique that may not fit in within the bucket of of a thousand slates type of sample size? I think we should do that, and I. Th- it's hard to say because we come across a slate like this so infrequently. I mean, you you mentioned it at the beginning that you didn't think you could remember a slate where we saw something like this, and I don't either. When I'm building my lineups, I use Fantasy Cruncher, so I don't force correlations in. This is primarily because my settings are set for college football. So when I'm building stacks, it'll be you know stack with one or two pass catchers, and then I throw in the exceptions. Like except in this instance, it would be Taysom Hill. Now, when I was doing that with NFL this week. It wasn't, all right, we're going to exclude Taysom Hill from this rule. It was, we're going to exile this entire game. And it was because of the ownership. And it mainly came from Taysom Hill. And then for all the reasons you laid out, how he affected the other players, Alvin Kamara, Michael Thomas, all of that production, you know, coming from the run game from Taysom Hill. So I ended up off of the game entirely. I think for different reasons. I think when we try to evaluate, you know, the context of these slates and try to point out, you know, maybe this is an outlier slate. We could get ourselves into some trouble here. At the same time, with Taysom Hill being 4.8 can DraftKings and having his his rushing equity, I think that is an instance where you can get different and you can't play him naked. Well, I mean, I, th- I think I think the, the given rule for those types of things is before the slate, you have to think to yourself, ask yourself this question, just how sexy is a naked quarterback? 
Like just just <laughs> how just how sexy is it? Maybe maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I mean, I we, we I consider this on any like Lamar Jackson is the the perfect case for this. And and I'm assuming in college football. I don't play college football, but I would assume that college football is a bit nutty because we have a lot of these games where, you know, the the total is like you don't see these totals in NFL. Like totals of 68 and 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 things on a slate where you have where you have guys that play multiple positions. You have a guy that's a quarterback that's technically listed as a wide receiver, and you have uh, running backs that are like like scat backs, but they also you know it's a triple option system. Uh, I think maybe you or the people that are involved uh, playing college football DFS, which is different, which is a different game. It's the reason why I don't play college football because obviously like I don't follow college football but DFS is still DFS but I'm very well aware that the correlations and textures and context of CFB slates are so dramatically different from NFL where you know you could have teams that are favored by 32 points that you don't see in NFL and you have you know guys where you could you could I'm going to stack the wide I'm going to stack the quarterback and wide receiver of this game. And I'm really putting in a wide receiver and a tight end because that's what they're designated as on DraftKings. So uh, would you would you say that for, for unique types of slates like NFL, that even though you didn't do it with Taysom, that you would consider that your experience with college football allows you to maybe think of constructions that are a bit outside of the box? It definitely does. It helps me think about the context of the slates in different ways. And we don't see this a ton, but one example that's just kind of a, an indirect parallel. Do you remember when the Chiefs played the Jets? Yeah, of course. And people didn't want to play them, and I play them because they're like, oh, they're going to get blown out. It's like, well, they're going to score like 35 points. So why not just, who's going to score those points? What, is it going to be, you know, the Byron Pringle? It's going to be, it's probably going to be Tyreek Hill and Ty- Travis Kelsey. Yeah, so a question I get in college football a lot, we'll, we'll say like Clemson's playing, I don't know, Georgia Tech, and they're favored by 35 points. People will ask me a lot about negative correlations between oftentimes like running back and quarterback, you know, can I play the same running back in the same lineup as my quarterback, even though he's not like the primary pass catcher? And my answer is always yes, because Clemson's going to score 50 points. Now, with the Chiefs example, they're not quite going to score 50 points, but they're going to score 35 points. So when that slate occurred, I, I mean, it was a it was a bad slate because Le'Veon Bell was making his debut, so there was no reason to play him or Clyde Edwards there. But it crossed my mind, you know, what is the negative correlation in this particular lineup if we had, you know, Clyde Edwards Hilaire by himself with Patrick Mahomes? If they're going to score that many points, I think the correlation doesn't matter as much. So to, to answer your question about college football helping me think about slates in different ways, it absolutely does. It at least makes me ask different questions, which I think has been helpful. And I also think maybe in college football, you're you're probably I'm saying this I'm I'm just, I'm using the concepts from my own course because remember I don't play college football DFS so like I just have to make these assumptions take the concepts of of all that's that's explained in the 15 hours the game theory I would have to assume Matt did correct me if I'm wrong I'm just I'm making a guess that based on having games where teams are favored by that much over other teams. That in those games, like having a run back is like is not even necessary because like you don't need the game to be competitive for like the game to go off. Like one team could just absolutely destroy a team like 62 to three. Yeah, you get teams that have implied team totals. There was a team that had an implied team total of eight the other day. 
<laughs> like you're absolutely not trying to run a run back from that team. Right. You don't, cause you don't need, I mean, even if like, I would assume in college football, if the game, if those types of games are close, it's not due to the underdog keeping up with the favorite. It's more due to the favorite, just absolutely failing to like convert anything. And the game ends up being a 17 to three game rather than a, uh, a 52 to 45 game with a, such a big, heavy underdog, like that underdog with the implied team total of eight is not going to just come out and, 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 and put up 40 points on the board. No, you're right. You're right. So, so in, so in college football on those slates, do you, do you even, do you even like, I'm assuming that correlation lever as far as like in in game correlation, meaning you're doing one ones like running back, opposing wide receiver, like those types of things. Like the slates are big enough that I'm I'm assuming that the correlation leveler is 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 really kind of low that that you're probably like who are the biggest favorites and how do I get as many as those guys into my lineups? It's still a little nuanced. Like with the Taysom Hill thing, when I'm building, I don't have that one tried and true rule that's like stack quarterback with pass catcher, run back opposing wide receiver on the other side. I have exceptions that I have to go in and manually edit the teams that I want those for. So if there's a game that has a 70-point total and it's a tight spread, I'll certainly try to factor in some correlation as long as they're not weird triple option teams or something like that. But as far as the spreads that are really wide, like you're mentioning, those are the exceptions that I'll put in. Uh, when you mentioned the triple option teams, are are those the types of teams that, like in NFL, we'd, we'd consider... I mean, they don't run a triple option, but I think that the closest comparable in NFL would be the Ravens where, you know, you have a quarterback that runs, they use like multiple running backs. The wide receiver is like spread out. Like they, they, there's no clear wide receiver one. So a lot of times the Ravens uh, end up being lower owned uh, and, and lower used even with high team totals. And I'm not talking about the Ravens like currently, like they're they're not doing, it seems like the, the other teams know their plays already. Uh, before they run them. Uh, but if we go back to like last year's Ravens, at least that like a lot of times Lamar Jackson would be the highest scoring quarterback. And like you, you typically default to Mark Andrews because the tight end position is so weak, typically as it is that why not, if he's going to throw touchdowns, like, let me at least get the, the tight end. Cause I'm not filling up like the wide receiver position. There's so much opportunity cost there. And you're just hoping for that is the triple option types of teams, those heavy rushing multiple runner type of teams, much more similar to the Ravens. And are those teams in college football typically not necessarily rostered as much because of that reason? There are, I think the teams that do have that kind of ambiguous factor, they're not rostered quite as often. There are teams that, you know, run traditional offenses to pro style offenses, but they just don't have a signal caller that you know, as a capable passer for whatever reason, one that comes to mind is like Virginia Tech. They run a normal offense, they run two, three backs at a time, and then their quarterback is also a dual threat. So when looking at those kind of slates, and when I see Virginia Tech on a slate and they have a good team total, I'm typically excluding them from my rules that are trying to stack quarterbacks and wide receivers more than comfortable running that quarterback by himself. Or, you know, if I I get a running back or something, I'll make a different rule that is essentially a grouping that's no... Hendon Hooker and Khalil Herbert in the same lineup because they, they those two are significantly negative correlate just because unless the team total is like 50, there's not a strong chance that those guys 
given the quarterback's rushing equity, are both going to end up in the optimal lineup. How about the opposite types of teams? Like uh, teams that run more of the, like the air raid, four or five wide receivers, that where the quarterback, you could see these games where the quarterback has 520 passing yards. Are When it comes to correlation with those teams, are you more likely to super stack them? I mean, is the, are those the types? Are those teams where you could legitimately have a quarterback and three pass catchers in your lineup? Are you more inclined to like hope that that all the production goes through just like two out of the five wide receivers and not kind of like I can understand. Obviously, we we talk about in smaller fields that condensed offenses and 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 getting all the points in a game has a lot of value because even though they may be a little bit negatively correlated. Like, just the, the abundance of points you get could win a 500-person contest. But in large field GPPs, for these air raid-type teams, have you built lineups that are essentially, like, four plus zeros, four plus ones, five plus ones? Yeah, there was a slate last year, actually. So there's obviously no Millie Maker in college football. But usually, given the time of year, there's 100K up top, 50K up top, 25K up top in those large prize pools. And there was a tournament, I remember... USC was on it. So I'm thinking about this USC team. They have a huge implied team total. They're favored by a lot. I can't remember who they played. But they're one of these teams that's throwing the ball 60% of the time, 300, 400-yard passing games. I'm like, all right, I'm going to force in at least two wide receivers to every one of these lineups. And then slate ends. USC has an amazing game. I can't remember what I was doing during the day, but I wasn't sweating my lineups. I'm thinking I had a phenomenal day. I go and check the leaderboards. The guy who won the 50K that day, triple stack. USC, three wide receivers, no run back. Because he got all he got all the points. I mean, just like he just, got all the points. Right. He just he got all the points, and there was no other like one off that like could necessarily beat any of the three wide receivers that were in that game. And plus it pricing does come into factor a little bit here. You're never going to get three wide receivers on the same team at 7K. So one of them was like 4.5K or something like that. Not near the min, but you know, a, a nice value play too but he's still the wide receiver three on a high-powered air raid offense, which is better than the wide receiver one on some teams. Well, are there any other dynamics to construction specific to college football that would necessarily like kind of go against a normal NFL DFS players thinking that would be, that would be plus EV in, in most in a typical, I mean, obviously every slate is different. But like the commonly held beliefs, like I've been rail, I've been rallying around, you know, I've been playing wide receiver in the flex like a hundred percent, like nearly the entire year in NFL. Even though like the tra- traditional construction is like, well, get three good running backs, get the you know the pass catching running backs, jam them in, and uh, get your points there and whatever. Like team NFL isn't being played that way. The, the running back touchdown variance is so high. I mean, Jamal Williams has a touchdown. Oh, thank you. I have Aaron Jones, right? You try to pick one of the Colts running backs. Who who knows what happens there? Uh, There's so many teams like that. And even with supposed bell cows, right? James Conner's having a great game. Yeah, it's pass interference in the end zone and Benny Snell rushes in a one-yard touchdown and you're sitting there holding your dick in your hand. I mean, like, it's it's like, like, but James Conner's like, like, averaging like eight yards a carry. Why aren't you giving it to him that like, I, I, even in cash games, I'm leaning towards wide receivers being, uh, less variant than running backs. But in 
college football. Are there anything like that where if if I like I just play NFL DFS, so if I came into this is why I don't play college football because I'm not aware of these things yet. When I am, maybe I'll play next year. That like I don't want to I don't want to make the the dummy mistakes of like well didn't you realize that this is an NFL and CFB you could do this type of stuff. Are there any other of those like sacred cows that most people use for NFL that really don't apply to CFB at all? There are some, a couple we mentioned. I think the main one, looking at these high team totals, I don't think negative correlation needs to be weighed as heavily when you're dealing with a team that has, a, let's say, a 40 plus implied team total. I don't have the, the exact number in my mind, but you can, when a team is going to score 40, 50 points, there's enough points sometimes that are going to be racked up in that individual game where sometimes you can take on negative correlation given the context of the slate. Always, of course, in the context of the slate. If you have some of these air raid teams, you can double stack with no runbacks. Those are a couple of big ones. But like you mentioned with the Taysom Hill example, thinking about how this slate might be different, that comes into play a lot more in college football where we have teams running just drastically different offenses. The triple option is an easy example. We actually don't see that many triple option teams on the slate unless you're running, I don't know, a weekday slate. But if we want to use last week for an example, they've been running these Tuesday, Wednesday night max slates. I know Eric is really big on these slates too. He plays a ton of college football himself. We had three games on Tuesday, three games on Wednesday. The Mac has like six shit teams and six really good teams. On Tuesday, we had all of the shit teams. So you're essentially looking at a bunch of quarterbacks that are going to throw the ball 18 times a game. One of the quarterbacks is like a converted punter, which is something you would never see in the NFL. So it drastically changes the outlook of your lineup. I'm almost always going to be rostering a running back in the flex. They're not caring about ne- not caring at, at all about negative correlation and just trying to take the points. On the next day slate where we had all of the good quarterbacks in college football, there's a super flex. So I'm immediately jamming in two quarterbacks. I'm trying to stack and correlate those lineups as much as possible. So even on a day-to-day basis, it's very, very different given the context of the slate. Right. And in NFL, we don't get that many. I mean, we look at the Ravens as like, oh, the outlier type of the way that they run their offense. And like, there's really like uh, the Patriots maybe now. But even then, like it's still it's still close enough to a traditional offense. Like with the Cardinals, it's like Hopkins could still have thirty points. I mean, like like all these teams, like they pass enough. It's not like Kyler Murray's rushing like twenty six times a game, right? And not flipping it out to 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 the to the flat and playing all of these like college football type plays that usually don't work in the NFL. That's why that's why NFL teams don't. Don't play that way because the defensive players are fast enough that you know you're not you're not gonna the triple. I mean, who who could run the triple option in the NFL and be successful with it? No one. Nobody in college football is successful with it. Oh, it's just <laughs> it, there's just bad coaches in some of these programs. Yeah, but, they, but don't they remember Nebraska? I, I when I used to follow college football, wasn't like like in the late '90s. Like, is, wasn't Nebraska like a big? I remember playing uh, the uh, NCAA football for for you know for EA or whatever. And like Nebraska was that triple option team that they were really good. And you just run all those plays and, and you won the game. Now there's no good teams that run it. <laughs> well, it's, it's evolved. It's it. Yeah, it definitely has. It's not something that any college football team should be running, but in like the context of NFL, I was trying to think about quarterbacks where I would make this exception for the same exception I do in college football, where, you know, if they're primarily a rusher and not throwing the ball as much, I was just trying to do this exercise in my head, like what quarterbacks would I exclude from this rule? 
outside of Taysom Hill, I think the only other one might be Kyler Murray. I'm just trying to think about how these quarterbacks really derive their ceiling. If we're speaking tournament specifically, if I, let's look at Josh Allen, for example. We you, People might try to argue you want to roster Josh Allen based on his rushing equity alone. I'm looking at just what he's done in his career. You're looking at, at least on a median basis, somewhere between 20 and 40 rushing yards. Maybe he rushes in one score. He's seldom punching in two. So if you're rostering him in a tournament, I still don't think you're accessing the ceiling without a stack. Right, and even if you don't play him with uh, with Stefan Diggs, I mean, playing him with a John Brown or a Cole Beasley, I mean, most likely if he's gonna if he's gonna be QB one on the slate, and not rush in more than one touchdown, like one of one of his pass catchers is likely to also have that little flame emoji on 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 your on your scoring. So so yeah, those those are instances. I also wanted to cover for the NFL slate. I, I touched on this. Uh, on the Morning Grind podcast with with, with Stephen Young at Roto-Grinders about uh, Alvin Kamara on this past slate. Because I, I thought, uh, in addition to Taysom Hill, that he was the most interesting player to consider. I didn't play any of them, and I'll explain why. That we saw the ownership on, on Kamara actually be fairly high. Like 20% in some contests. And like... We talked about before, like this is perfect because it's, we talk about those three levers, right? Taysom Hill, we all, we, me, I, I pulled down the correlation lever and said, uh, he doesn't fit. So I, I acquit. Uh, you pulled the leverage lever and said, I can't play a guy that owned and I can't pair with anyone. And the projection lever was the one that really we should have been looking at more. Uh, Kamara, on the other hand, was like the opposite. Kamara projected very poorly for his salary uh, in, in in at least in my model, I mean, in most that I that I saw around the industry, uh, correlation made perfect sense negatively to Taysom Hill, right? Like if you if, if you thought in terms of the Saints do well and Taysom doesn't do well, like that's Kamara, that's you know Kamara rushing the ball in three times and not Taysom Hill, and then you take a look at the leverage side and like I didn't expect him to be twenty two twenty ish percent owned. I expected him to be like eight percent owned. So I was like, well, maybe I play Kamara. Why? Because Dalvin Cook. Dalvin Cook is the chalkiest player on the slate. Dalvin Cook's nine in, in the same exact range. So I'm going to play a lineup and, and I'm going to fade Cook. I'm going to get my leverage. By fading Cook, I'm going to get my positional price leverage. Fade Cook and play play Kamara in that lineup. I think that's a mistake generally because how much leverage are... Yes, you're, fade, you're fading the uh, 40% owned guy. You the lineups that you'll win fading the forty percent owned guy is relies more on Cook failing than on your guy succeeding, right? Because if they both have the same score, let's say like Dalvin Cook put up twenty nine points, Kamara put up twenty nine points also, like you didn't gain anything. Like this, you didn't gain anything at all. It didn't matter what Kamara's game was. If Dalvin Cook put up twenty and Kamara put up thirty. Okay, now you're gaining 10 points, but you also spent 9,000 also. Your lineup looks just like Dalvin Cook lineups because you're just doing a 1v1 pivot. So really, how much relative value are you gaining? If you go through a matrix of expected outcomes and use the extremes. So we use the extreme, like, let's say the extreme failure is zero points. That's obviously the extreme of failure. And the extreme of succeeding is 50. So if you play the same lineup, let's say you played, 
you know, uh, Jacoby Myers, and you played like you played a fairly chalky lineup and said, I'm gonna get my leverage with Dalvin Cook. If Dalvin Cook has zero and Kamara has 50, like you gain tons of relative value over all of the lineups that would have had Dalvin Cook in that type of construction, which still means you have to hit Chalk Myers. You still have to hit Chalk Cooks. You still have to hit Chalk Justin Jefferson and Chalk whatever who uh, at running back at RB2. Kalen Balaj has to do well, right? Or uh, uh, Adrian Peterson has to do well. And then, then Cook versus Kamara becomes useful. In the opposite, if obviously if Cook puts up 50 and Kamara puts up zero, you're dead. I mean, like, like we don't have to explain that. The 40% dumb guy versus the, yeah, you're, you're absolutely dead. If both put up zero, you're still dead because you have zero in a running back spot. And if you both put up 50, it didn't gain you anything. You, you could have just played Cook in that spot. So from that matrix, like, if you play Kamara in a lineup that didn't contain other chalk pieces, why don't you just play the guy that's projected so much better because you already have leverage in all those other spots anyway? So, I mean, do you do you approach, did you approach Kamara in the same way? I know we both X'd out the game. So I, I, know, I know we both didn't play it. But that was primarily my thought process in, uh, yes, I thought Taysom was going to be high-owned. Maybe I could get leveraged by playing Kamara. But in building those types of lineups, if I ran 100 lineups and I boosted Kamara's score and where I just locked him in and say, show me the best Kamara lineups, like they projected just so much poorer than other lineups. And the ones that did project well had tons of chalk in them. So like I, I just felt like Kamara was was not, it, it seemed... You could have you could have used the concepts and used the levers to go. Well, I think Kamara is a is a a good play. He has a ceiling, although his meeting was low projected on that slate. He's negatively correlated to Taysom Hill, and he's leverage off of Dalvin Cook. Like the, to a layperson, like just looking at just that those simple terms, you go, well, maybe I should play a bunch of Kamara, my Dalvin Cook lineups. But I, I think my explanation shows that by playing the three levers together. You could see that, like, you have more downside in doing that than upside. Yeah, I played absolutely zero Alvin Kamara, too. It was for similar reasons. A lot of the lineups I was building where I ended up with Alvin Kamara, and I'm going through this thought exercise in my mind. I'm just looking at the lineups. He generally ends up being uncorrelated. He projects worse than someone like Dalvin Cook. There's other constructions I like more that are more leveraged, that are more correlated, so, you know, he just didn't come together in my builds for a lot of the same reasons you mentioned. The poor product projection, uncorrelated, it, it didn't really make sense in my builds this week. Right, and you could say this comes up a lot also with cheap wide receivers. Because uh, we sometimes have a chalk guy, you know, some chalk 3K guy, 3,500, 3, uh, that, you know, is going to come in at, I mean, we had a slate, uh, I know Mims had some ownership this slate, but we had a slate... Uh, a little bit ago where Mims was like the chalky, you know, 3K guy. He was like 25% owned. And then people think the same thing of, well, I'm going to play the same type of lineup, but instead of Mims, I'm going to play, you know, Chris Conley. I'm going to play KJ Hamler. I'm going to play, you know, Jakeem Grant. You know, name, name, name some cheap receiver on that slate. But the same thing applies there where, yes, you're getting off the cheap 
If you put that matrix together of upside versus downside and use the extremes, it's like you're getting leverage in that one spot, but you're still competing against all the lineups that look like that that have the chalk player in it. So the only the only leverage point in that lineup is I'm playing the 1% owned 3K guy and you guys are playing the 25% owned 3K guy. And if my guy outscores your guy, take, take, I'm winning a million dollars. Like, no, you're not winning a million dollars. Like the difference between those two guys could be two points. It's like, great. You gain two points in leverage in relative value over 25% of the field. There's still 75% of the field you have to beat. And now you have, you, you have a construction that is also very chalky. Like just the construction type is chalky. So it's more, usually you gain more by getting leverage by changing your construction because now you have multiple positions where instead of playing Dalvin Cook and a cheap running back, you're playing two 6K running backs. You're playing, on this past late, you're playing James Conner. You're playing Mike Davis. You're playing James Robinson. Like the rain, and then now you don't have to play a 3K wide receiver. So like if that 3K wide receiver fails, like it's not just the difference between your cheap receiver and another cheap receiver that you played. It's more of a fact of, wow, no cheap receiver went off. So anyone that played that construction is dead. Is not it has no first place equity. And yes, on this past late, we got a, a Demir Bird. Obviously, that was super leverage off of Jacoby Myers. But if you could predict that, uh, you know. Feel, feel, feel free to contact me and keep it a secret uh, because he, I don't know how anyone could, you know, when he has like zero targets in five games. Uh, but there's to me, there's more benefit. The more players that you're switching in your lineup from the chalk construction, the more relative value that you're getting because you're getting a, a, you're getting a sum of all the relative value of if you're doing a 4v4 that still contains some chalk pieces that the combination is just so much less owned in total that that's a better way than to think in terms of, well, this guy is chalk. I'm going to play the same lineup and just pivot in one spot. I agree with you. And I think if you were approaching this slate in that way, it was an incorrect approach. I think just by correlating your lineups, it led you to a lot of just naturally different roster constructions. You know, when, when I'm playing Dalvin Cook too, for example, just using this, I mean, you use someone on Dallas uh, Dallas's lineup, and you know if you play CD Lamb Amari Cooper, you end up with a, a wide receiver in the mid price range. That led me to different constructions. You know, just like playing game stacks with Lamar Jackson leads you to Derrick Henry maybe in some spots. If you're you're getting some leverage off the Green Bay game, maybe you end up with Aaron Jones and not Devonte Adams. So I did end up with a lot of just naturally different constructions without even really having trying to force it. It was just through the correlations that led me there. There weren't a lot of just, all right, I have Dalvin Cook in my lineup. We got to get leverage off Dalvin Cook. So we're going to swap to someone in the exact same price range. Just by correlating, I was kind of led to that on its own. Another thing I wanted to talk about, because uh, I mentioned it on my stream, because I do the Saturday streams, and that's after I build lineups, that based on the context of the games and the totals on this slate, I was more inclined to take a stand on a game or two or three than like spread diversify and spread my exposures out and like, like try to get a little piece of this, a little piece of that, a little piece of this, because uh, this year in NFL, we typically, we've been seeing weeks where 
There's like a game with a 57 total, but then there's also a game with a 55 total. But there's also three other games with 50 plus totals that, uh, you know, if you get the right pieces of those games, like you win. But when the totals are lower in comparison, there's more value in, if you can get the one game that goes 10 or 15 points over the total, that's, that's more likely your path to success, assuming that most of these games end up being middling. But in relating it to college football, because I think the dynamic is probably a little bit more pronounced in college football. Like, let's say that, let's say you have a slate where, you know, you have multiple games with 70 totals on it. And then a couple of games that have low, lower in relation totals. Like in those types of slates with the, the, the way that fantasy points are distributed in a game, like, those slates have more points available. Like I take a look at this past NFL slate and based on the totals, the amount total pie of fantasy points that are available on for all 11 games combined is smaller than versus a slate that has multiple games that have 57 totals. And even if it has a 41 total game, the whole slate, like I have to expect that on this past slate, the winning score was going to be 200. Yet on past slates, the winning GPP score was going to be 250 just due to the fact of cumulatively the totals are higher. And and when the totals are higher, it's more likely that there are one-off pieces in multiple games that are the nuts. That maybe the stack isn't the best stack, but it was a good stack and one guy got like 40 points. You know, we get a Devontae Adams, a Keenan Allen, you know, those types of Adam Thielen, where it's like, yes, you needed those guys, but you didn't need the stack. In college football, I'm assuming it it could easily be, it's the same way where if you had three games that have 70 totals, it's not a matter of like, like, well, which team do I stack? It's more of the fact of, can I get the outliers of all three games into my lineups? And like that, and that's what I'm aiming for. And that's why this past slate, when I said I'm planting my flag on three games, because I just thought that there was less chance of there being like one outlier ceiling game in so many multiple games that I needed to get exposure to like, I didn't need to get exposure to Miami and Denver. I'm just like, I'm just going to assume that no one is, no one is, no one ends up being a ceiling player. And I just X out the game completely. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned this. In college football, we we do see this sometimes given the context of the slate. If we do have a couple teams with really high team totals or a couple games that have 70-point totals overall, I brought this parallel to NFL earlier this year when we started seeing multiple games with 55, 56-point totals. And I asked my my co-host on the Roto Underworld podcast, Kyle Dvorak, about this, and we had a spirited argument. I was like, you know what? I think at some point if these totals keep rising, you might see like the decline of the double stack. Because there's just more opportunity cost. If you have, you know, Seattle and Arizona in two separate games, and you're trying to roster, uh, let's say, Kyler Murray, DeAndre Hopkins, and Christian Kirk, well, if Seattle's also scoring 50 points in that game, DK Metcalf to see this is a bad example because their prices wouldn't be similar. But you get what I'm saying. What are the chances DK Metcalf outscores the secondary correlation on that Arizona stack you ran? Right. That's the main reason why, uh, like earlier. Like, other than this past slate, I've been running a lot of two plus ones. Like, the skinny stack runbacks, because, like, I want to get the one-off pieces from the other games that the stack doesn't include. That is the outlier performance. But on this past slate, like, I, I could look right now, I think I think 90 plus percent of my lineups were three plus ones. 
because I just didn't see. I, I looked around like, okay, I'm going to play uh, Dallas, Minnesota. You know, Vikings have a very condensed offense. The Cowboys defense sucks. You know, they have a high total. They're playing in the dome. So let me get Hook, Thiel, and Jefferson into as many lineups as possible and then correlate them with Dalton stacks or Cousins stacks and CeeDee Lamb and Cooper and, and just like, okay, I'm betting on that game environment. But I'm not worried about like, uh, you know, some random guy. You know, I'm not worried about uh, Jerry Judy. If Jerry Judy goes off, then I lose, I guess. Because I'm, I'm just not betting on that game environment. I, I went for uh, Cincinnati-Washington and I went for Chargers-Jets. Uh, and, you know, I... I mostly got there, I but I still had snowflakes in my lineup. But, uh, like, I'm not, I, I didn't consider, like, uh, like Carolina. Like, I didn't, I, I, I may I may have some Robbie Anderson, I think. Barely any, somewhere. I, I had some Corey Davis. Like, I, like if, if, if the price fit and the projection fit, they were fit in. But, like, I just, like, if, I, if I'm not stacking that game, I felt like the game totals were low enough and the fantasy distribution was was going to be small, that I could most likely survive this slate with double stacks and getting the right game, rather than when the totals are so high, I'm going, well, I'm going to stack the Cardinals, and then I'm going to find, uh, you know, there's going to be some other team on the slate that scores 38 points. Like, you take a look and you go, I'm going to stack the Cardinals, but I still feel like I want to get a Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey into my lineup because the Chiefs have such a high total. Or you look at the Steelers' total and go, maybe I need to get Deontay Johnson to more of my lineups. Maybe I'm not stacking the Steelers, but one of those guys may get there. And then when you're playing double stacks, you're filling up a wide receiver slot with someone that can't get a touchdown when the other receiver in your lineup gets a touchdown also. The guys in the other games aren't correlated with those guys. So when you're, this is for large field GPPs. The double stack in those types of slates are fine for small field ones where you don't have to get every slot in your lineup perfectly. But since I focus on large field GPPs, my mindset is that like I can't have a snowflake in my lineup. It's, it's kind of funny to say because I actually had a snowflake in my lineup when I won the slant for 50K because no other running back did well enough to beat Mike Davis's whatever 13 points that slate. But you get my gist of like when there are more fantasy points available on the entire slate, it's more important to find as many of them rather than completely correlate your lineup. There's direct parallels in college football with this. It's something I've been doing with Clemson because they play in a horrible conference and they're often favored by 40 points. So a rule I'll create will be, you know, given the context of the other rules, if there's not correlations within that game already built into some of the lineups, I'll force at least one Clemson player in there because their team total is like 60 or something absurd. In NFL this week, I did the exact same thing you did. Every single lineup I ran was a double stack, except Lamar Jackson. He's the only one I made an exception for. And I did allow single stacks of Lamar to Marquise or Lamar to Mark Andrews. But those were literally the only ones I didn't have double stacked. Right. I mean, did, were, you, were you cheating off of me? Like it seems, it seems <laughs> I didn't play any Marquise Brown. I'm not buying into the Ponzi scheme. I didn't. Like, oh, I did. At, at his price, him. I I just I'm I'm done. I'm done with him. I'm done. It, uh, what he doesn't he doesn't even project well anymore. Like what I mean uh, is there, like what what do you do with him? I mean what do you do? Like here here's here's a perfect thing that you. I mean we we're, we're talking about Marquise Brown. Really, what we're saying, we're, when we whenever I talk about players, you know me, Matt. I don't care about players. Their names on the spreadsheet. Uh. Marquise Brown, what we're really doing from a mathematical perspective or like a logic puzzle uh, perspective is we're 
overvaluing, possibly overvaluing, his prior of a small sample size and projecting that out and, like, extrapolating that out. Obviously, the further and further we get away from that, the portion of the sample size where, you know, he puts up 30-point games, like, that decays, that regresses in your model over time. That's why you still see, like, when T.Y. Hilton goes down to 3,800, it's like, why does T.Y. Hilton project well? Well, because, like, your model is accounting for for sample from, like, a year and a half ago, and his recent stuff, maybe not so. Same for, like, an A.J. Green, like, those types of guys. Uh, are we doing, like, the opposite for, for Marquise Brown? Because it's not like, like, when you talk about A.J. Green and T.Y. Hilton, we're talking about guys that are just old. So it's like there. If we took an eight eight year sample size, like T. Y. Hilton shouldn't be four thousand. I mean, like if you if you just went purely by that. But Marquise Brown, we're not talk. We're talking about what his second year in the league. So even that even that that prior, like how much of a prior that is? Like uh, what a three game sample size from you know a couple of games from last year, and he's still fifty eight hundred. It's not like he's come down to thirty five hundred. Like are we are we just are we are we making that? Are we? I'm not making the fuck you. I ain't making that mistake. I, I haven't played Marquise Brown. I don't think I played Marquise Brown in a couple of weeks. Uh, but the fact that I played him at all this year should. I mean, at least I made a little bit of a mistake. I think I played him at 6300. So I, maybe I shouldn't talk uh, on a slate. Uh, but do you, do you think that in general, not d- don't just focus on Marquise Brown. That you have to consider, even with like your projection model of. Well, this guy, uh, like, you don't want to, you don't want to tweak an existing, like, reasonably accurate model. But if you're getting, if you, if you, if if you're getting uh, highly projected players that you look at and you go, how the fuck is that possible? Like, it could be. It's very easy to see the T. Y. Hiltons and the A. J. Greens, but the Marquise Browns. Like, at what point do you just say that? A, who cares about a three-game sample size or whatever from last year? You know, the guy's the wide receiver three on the team, and, like, he should be 3,500. Yeah, honestly, I think we could be overrating Marquise Brown. I still thought he would—maybe we don't want to call him wide receiver one, but pass catcher one or two behind Mark Andrews. I think there's more debate about that now that he might actually be the wide receiver pass catcher two on this team. Just looking at his role on the field, however, just, like, routes run— targets which have come down significantly throughout the year as well so maybe this is overrating what we saw in the early weeks of the year going into this week I still thought you know maybe this is someone who's on the field just hasn't gotten there he correlates extremely well with Lamar Jackson when he ends up in the lineup I'm just going to allow it and that probably is a mistake at this point with those targets perhaps being overrated his target share has fallen significantly well I mean I I I typically I mean, I rally, I rally against small sample sizes. And I know in NFL, we primarily deal... I mean, even the large sample sizes are small sample sizes, right? Like five what do years... You, what do you mean you rally... What do you mean you rally against them? Against, uh, like, I played James Conner. I played... James Conner was my, my second highest exposed running back. Oh, I, played a, I played a ton of them, too. Okay, but uh, if you listen to any podcast for the past two weeks, you know, the... The, the Steelers are passing. They're they're they're, they're past first team now, right? They're, they're, who cares about anything before the past two or three games, right? Uh, it doesn't matter. Connor get ninety percent of the snaps or anything like that. You throw out the Cowboys game because they were down and he was game scripted out of it. But people are like, nope, 
past two games show we should change all of the Steelers' metrics to them being a team that passes like the Bengal, like Burrow. Like that we have to we have to change that for that. And you could say the opposite for the Chargers. I played Chargers and then I heard a pl- bunch of people tell me against the Jets, this is gonna be a slow game. The Chargers are slow and methodical and run first. And Herbert comes out and throws 31 times in the first half. Why? Because the Jets secondary is fucking horrible. So why wouldn't you? So like the those that recency bias type of small sample of like we take Jacoby Myers, look at the past three games, 40% target share, and then the, the 7%. It's like it's Bill fucking Belichick. Like we, we see that this happened for the Patriots for 10 years, that from week to week, who knows who the running back's going to be, who's going to catch the most. We see, we see that all the time. But people take these two or three game samples and go, this is the new normal. And I, And if that's where the ownership goes, like I'm more likely to say, well, according to the past, it's not like they changed the coach or like Tomlin's still there. So who says that two two games was the outlier and they're going to go back to running the ball 26 times with Connor? Yeah, I, for, I think I think about it in just a, a different way. I love it for that reason, because then I can play James Connor. And I, you know, I think I'm printing my money ahead of time. No one's playing James Connor. Everyone thinks they're throwing the ball, what, 60 percent of the time now. I'm just going to play James Connor. Game script goes a little bit different than expected. James Conner's off to a productive day. There's your leverage. There's your productive day. No one has him. Obviously, that didn't happen. But I like these small sample sizes. If it chases people away from what I consider, you know, good leverage plays. No, no, no. I, I like it too. Like uh, when I say I'm rallying against it, I'm rallying against people that are like, you got to play this guy because in the past two games, this is what happened. KJ Hamler, ten targets the past two games. He's thirty five hundred, thirty six hundred. He's playing the slot. You got to play like. I'm like, dude, it's two games. What do I care about? Two fucking games. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> we were talking before the show. Someone played KJ Hamler against me in cash. Uh, he's a cheap receiver. He could get there. I mean, it's To me, you know me, Matt. It's not about the plays, right? It's about the lineups. It's just just that when I'm considering like guys, especially that, that are not going to be correlated to my lineups, like a running back, like why do I – like when people – I say like, I'll go on my stream and go like I'm going to play – you know, I'm playing a bunch of this guy, and they go, well, last week he was horrible. It's like, we, we're not playing last week's slate. Like, what do I care about last week's, like, well, what happened last week? Especially in football, where they have game plans from a week-to-week basis. We see teams come out of the bye, and they look like completely different teams because they, like, completely reworked their playbook. I don't know, I don't know what they did, but, like, like how do you just base that? that to me, that's the definition of game log watching. Of, well, they did this the last game, so I'm going to assume that that's what they're going to do this game. And I look at it from a, like, what have they done the past, like, year, two years? Like, those types of samples. And that's when when people think it's nuts. I know, like, Brandon Adams on the ASA show, uh, we were talking about the Patriots, and he's like, like I, I'm going to play some J- James White. And, and uh, people in the YouTube comments are like, what are you fucking stupid? Have you seen the Patriots play? James White is, is barely doing anything anymore. Like it's it's the it's Harris and Burkhead and White is just the eh, whatever like that. And then watch the last game. James James White's coming in catching. It, it feels like the old Patriots. You know he's coming out of the backfield. I know it, it, that portion of the game. You know Burkhead did get injured, but White was in before then. So like White was in catching 
those those types of six yard passes that kind of act as runs when Damian Harris wasn't in and he was in together. Like, but if I would have if, if if you would have said before this year that you were gonna play James White at whatever his price was, forty five hundred, like no one would call you nuts. They'd be like, Okay, yeah, he's the Patriots pass catching back and we see him get, you know, sometimes eight, ten targets a game. You know, the same people play JD McKissick. Right? Jay, oh, he's gotten four tar- 14 targets a game. Because that has to continue, even though it's only a two-game sample size. James White, we have a, a five-plus-year sample size of him catching five-plus balls out of the backfield on average. And it's like, well, no, the past couple of games, James White has been a ghost, so I can't play him. I Yes, Matt, I love this. But it makes t- the logical brain, the large sample size is what you should default to more than the the recent sample size. But there is, but I still want to, the, the question that I have for the discussion is, like we said with Marquise Brown, like at what point do we have to either like stop, at what point do we have to stop playing T.Y. Hilton, right? I, at what point is the large sample size, who gives a fuck? Uh, we have to uh, go with the new normal. And then at what point do we, we stop uh, that that uh, we look at recent production and go maybe this is the maybe this may, maybe maybe Deontay Johnson should be an eight K wide receiver like and maybe who cares if it's his first season and I just just like maybe it's just a six to seven game like aberrant Juju's still there Claypool's getting catches you know that they're not going to throw the ball sixty times a game every game if we go by the large sample size. Like sometimes we have to go, you know, but I'm more likely to to weigh the recency when the field isn't and weigh the large sample when the field isn't. Like I'm, I'm much more likely to bet against uh, the the field on that rather than just make a hard rule of like at this certain point is when I just start Xing out AJ Green from my player pool. And at that date, like he's no longer exists to me. He's a ghost. So how do you deal with that? I feel like I deal with it in a similar similar way to you. I'm looking at some of my most owned players at the different positions. I mean, I played a ton of James Conner. I played some Amari Cooper. I played some Ezekiel Elliott. I played some Miles Sanders. I played some a little bit of Mike Davis. I only ran 17 lineups. So I mean, there's not a huge sample for me to draw from from these players. But I'm similar to you. If people are going to be overweighting recent performances and not playing James Conner, well, I'm going to play James Conner. Same thing, you know, with. With Ezekiel Elliott still seeing a bell cow roller or Amari Cooper functioning as a wide receiver one in Dallas's offense. I know people don't think very highly of, of Andy Dalton. That's fine. I think Andy Dalton can still backdoor his way into productive games with Amari Cooper, CeeDee Lamb, and Michael Gallup. So people aren't going to play that stack, and I can jam chalk around it. Dalvin Cook correlates on the other side. I'm going to play those guys. So similar to you, I think we approach this in a similar fashion. Right, and even even from a recency perspective, I played a bunch of Naheem Mines because of his past games, because people weren't playing him. It's one of those things where if you listen to shows throughout the industry, like this is why I listen to shows, because that it typically is either what people listen to, a, a plenty of people that play DFS listen to, and also gives just a glimpse of like the regular people's minds, of just like, what are people thinking about? And sometimes we have uh, a situation, like if we remember uh, that week where uh, Travis Fulgham, Clay, Chase Claypool, one one correlation at sub one percent own was like the winner, and it's like who could have possibly predicted 
Travis Fulgham and Chase Claypool mega ceiling games. And but the next week, Matt, what was what was everyone talking about? Like, well, you, you don't play Travis Fulgham because you're not going to chase those points, right? You don't play Chase Claypool. Chase Claypool got priced up because the, Chase Claypool was like in, under 4K that game or something, and now he's like 5,500. Like, had it's fuck you. It's an outlier performance. Like, like that's what you heard of. Like, don't look at the game logs, please, people. Don't chase. Don't chase. And then he ends up coming in at like five percent owned because everyone everyone's doing the opposite of recency bias of well. But they're doing the correct thing of, like, should I base my decision on one game sample? But, like, my attitude is, is, like, well, if people, like, maybe maybe that is the new normal. Maybe I should be playing uh, someone that is overpriced for his, his, his large sample size, but maybe maybe that is the new normal. I was playing Deontay Johnson before people were playing Deontay Johnson. Like, when he was 4,200 that slate, it's like, jam him in, give me, give me 20% of him, because based on the construction of that slate... Like people is like they just saw him get hurt every every game it seemed, and I'm like if people are gonna think he's gonna get hurt, and that his his uh, targets are unsustainable, I'm gonna bet on the other way. But if uh, if those if he was 25 percent on that slate, I'd say the opposite. So that's why like when people ask me for takes, like my takes are are the reverse of whatever anyone else's takes are. Like that's how you play this game. Like the game the game is is that. Like, why was I under Jacoby Myers? People are like, well, he has a 40% target. It's like, well, what happens if that's just a fucking blip? Like, I'm not going to play a 23% owned wide receiver with like, like, okay, a three-game sample size way to go. Doesn't mean I fade him completely, but like, I'm going, I'm going to go under on that. But if everyone was like, it's not sustainable. Don't play Jacoby Myers. It's a trap. And he's all blah, blah, blah. And he comes in at 7% owned. You would look at my exposures and you'd see fucking I have 25% of them. So it's like, I don't have the opinion on the player. I have the opinion on the market. How efficient is the market? And how can I take advantage of it? If Connor was 20% owned, I probably wouldn't have that much of him. But he, when he comes in at 7% owned and he's on the he's the running back for the highest total team on the slate, it's the biggest spread. Like that, that, that if you look at 40 years sample size of fantasy football, like that running back fantasy points correlates directly to that spread and that total. Yeah, I did I, literally the exact same thought process with James Conner, too. He, he didn't get there. That's fine. I'm so comfortable with the play. But we see these small sample traps every single year. I remember even going back to Tyreek Hill's rookie season. People didn't want to play Tyreek Hill, and they, they, they just pick and choose based on the players they want to. I think it's a form of confirmation bias in a way where – you know, a, a player thinks Tyreek Hill's an outlier, so then you you use the small sample size to your advantage. And and vice versa for other sorts of players will use, let's say, Deontay Johnson. People don't want to play Deontay Johnson because of the small sample. Then I'm willing to play him. If it's the opposite, then I probably won't play him. Right. But people, I, I heard people didn't want to play Jakeem Grant because he's five foot six. I didn't even know his height. Right. Well, me, well, me, but I only knew his height because he kept on saying, and you know what I kept on uh, thinking when I heard like Jakeem Grant, he's an okay play, but he's five foot six. So like, like how, how, what's his ceiling at his height? <laughs> like, like his, he's not hitting his head on the ceiling. You're right. I get it. But the, all I, 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 I heard this on multiple podcasts and all I keep on thinking in my head is going, how tall is Tyreek Hill? Like how, like, like, like dude, the dude's a midget too. And like, you have no problem paying 7K for him. Man, I, th- I 
part of it when these people are doing content, I think it's hard because there's like such a market in the industry for all right, who's who's getting the snaps, who's running the route, seeing the targets, and it does naturally overweight those small sample sizes to a degree. And like people are just thirsty for that kind of raw information. I think it's part of the market we're in. But at the same time, when we're playing DFS, I think people strongly overweight it. Right. Well, I mean, that's what that. Why do you think I think player questions are stupid? I mean, Man, that's I that's, mean, that's the main. It's the it's don't you don't have to tell you don't have to explain the projections. I like like I take a look and I go. I have my model. My model is back tested. It's it's reasonably accurate. I can look at other models and go. Okay, I'm not that far off from other from other people all that much. So it's like like I'm like when people are like, well, should I play this guy or this guy? It's like, well, this uh, what? Just look at look at the fucking projections. Like what? Like well, why would you play? I don't even give a shit what the answer why is. I like like I like I I always I always come down. I repeat. I know I repeat this quote on every fucking show, but before we play, we must realize that our goal is to make money. Like the goal is to make money. If you told me, if you told me that that I, over a course of a ten thousand slate sample, that if I rub my belly and pat my head. While I build my lineups, I have a plus uh, 46% ROI, like over 10,000 slate samples. It doesn't seem like it should be correlative just for intuition. Matt, I, I'm going to do that the next, I'm going to the 10,000 and first slate. I'm going to do it. And you don't have to explain to me why. Like, like, that's why, like I, to me, I view DFS. And I think a lot of top players, the projections are the football knowledge. Once you have the projections, you have the simulated range of outcomes. Like we just, we're just looking at medians, right? When you say, oh, it's projected for 14. I got into an argument with uh, uh, another, another analyst over Tyler Boyd this past week. Tyler, you know, play T Higgins. The Washington versus slot wide receivers are fucking number one in the league. Tyler Boyd can have tons of problems in the slot. Tyler Boyd went out and put up 17 fucking points he had eight eight receptions. This is even before Burrow got injured. And Higgins had a garbage game. Like I just said, it's like what the, that doesn't matter. The slot versus what it, like that's it's so if it if it did matter, you would never know when it does. That's how small of a sample size it is. So in looking at the projections, like who'd you play? To, to, to one or the other? Like, well, I get the range of outcomes is six to thirty with a fifteen median. This guy is 5 to 28 with a 14 median. We'll pay the first guy. And you go, well, why? It's like, well, because the model tells me that's, that's who, it weighs everything for me already. Like to me, the game of DFS starts after the projections. Like the, everyone, a lot of people focus on how do I get to that number? And I'm like, well, I already, I have a calculator. Like the, don't, you don't have to, don't, you don't even have to explain why the number is the number. Like as long as I get the fucking number, you're doing long division and I'm using a calculator. It takes me two seconds to do. It takes you all day to research. And then you're, the time that you could spend, the time that you're spending analyzing PFF grades and all that type of bullshit that a good model would weigh appropriately and spit out numbers and simulate uh, outcomes. Why don't you spend learning the, the, the game of the... the to me, I spend 95% of the time of, okay, I got my projections. How do I exploit the field? How do I construct lineups? What correlations work bet? Like all of that type of stuff. 
that people are just like getting to Sunday going, I didn't consider any of that. I just need to know who the best plays are. It's like, well, the model tells you who the best plays are. Like they, like you're, you're done. You're like, the, you have your answers. Now build lineups. So this is, to me, this is where, uh, in, 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 in content, I guess, that like, I feel like if I read an article of like, here are the top 10 best DraftKings plays, it's like, well, thank you for explaining the projections to me. Like I could, like you're, you're listing 10 guys that like show up in the top 15 of my model. So like, like, like I just, it feels like I wasted three minutes reading this. Yeah. People, it's just an underserved market. People don't understand that stuff yet. I think partially just because all of the content that goes into DFS is catered towards those top plays. And you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And it's not something I spend my time on. I got into fight with someone too about wide receiver cornerback matchups. And I'm like, well, DK Metcalf is going up against Patrick Peterson this week. So I just tweet back at the guys like, all right, here's the top corners. DK Metcalf is face this year. Ramsey had zero catches. Tredavious White, three for 65. Peterson previously, one for six. But then, like, Xavier Howard, four, 106. Stefan Gilmer, three, 85. So it's like, even this year, like, that shit doesn't matter. And it, 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 it doesn't matter. It does. It do, it, to, but to, I, 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 make it, I make it clearer. Like, doesn't matter is not, because you can't say that, because BVP in baseball does matter. It just, yeah, the, the thing is, is that the, the sample size that you have means that you it's not predictive. Like that's the better that if you were to say I can't play this guy against this cornerback, you'd be right as often as a coin flip. Sometimes yeah, so. like we saw Evans this pat with with Ramsey, like Evans Evans seemed to do fine against Ramsey. Well, well, on the one play that they'll, they'll mention on the one play that he scored, Ramsey was actually on a different guy. I said, you mean like a regular NFL football team? So when you look at wide receiver quarterback matchups, it's the same thing when people ask in basketball, uh, well, uh, who's going to be covering uh, James Harden or something like, it's like, dude, it's a team sport. You could weigh, I weigh offensive efficiency, defensive efficiency as a team, not as an individual slices of slot guy versus linebacker versus because the team efficiencies, if you back tested that, that would have a high, that would have a pot, strong positive correlation. But I don't care. Like, don't, if, if you're scared of Jalen Ramsey, then don't play any of the Bucks pass cat. Like, it's factored already into the defensive efficiency, the pass efficiency of the team. And for every play that he doesn't cover Evans, that's a play that Evans could end up scoring a ton. You're, you're not correlating plays. You're, cor- you're correlating fantasy performance to some arbitrary thing with such a small sample size that, yes, confirmation bias means that in a one slate, you could say, see, I was right. And then the next slate, you could be completely wrong and then go, well, I just got unlucky. And then the next slate, you could be right and go, see, I told you. And the next slate, you could be wrong. If you, if you, we said in the past episode with back testing your takes, like wide receiver cornerback matchups are that type of like base your lineups based on wide receiver cornerback matchups and do that over the course of a five year period. You'll thought you'll, you'll look at it and go, well, half the time it mattered and half the time it didn't. And can you predict which half it was? Of course not. So if, if a monkey could flip a coin and get that right more as much as you, then what the fuck are you looking at it for? Yeah, that's what I said to this guy. I'm I'm guilty of using a lot of hyperbole on Twitter, especially because it drives engagement. So that people don't realize, like, I do this on purpose. So when I say 
it doesn't matter who DK Metcalf is running up against tonight. This was on Thursday last week. I don't actually mean like, no, DK Metcalf can run up against anyone and have the same outcome. Wide receiver cornerback matchups probably do matter. And then someone asked me to clarify, and it's like, it's not that they don't matter. It's that other people think they matter maybe more than they do, and they're overweighting it. So I tend to fade it based on just the market overall. I mean, I I, I said a bunch of stupid shit on Twitter. The other day, I, someone posted like something that Travis Etienne had a bad game. And you know, if you follow college football, age is very predictive. And I'm like, well, yeah, he's a senior. He's not going to be good anyway. Of course, I think Travis Etienne is good in college football. I'm just using hyperbole because he's a senior and he shouldn't have went back to school. So people, I think, just don't understand. Like, you, you use the exaggeration, too, with play whoever you want. You don't necessarily mean, like, this is a bad example because Demir Bird did good. But you're not going out and being like, all right, play whoever you want. Play, like, Jamal Williams when Aaron Jones is the starting running back or the backup quarterback. It's not like that. It's hyperbole. Right. Well, I mean, it, it's hyperbole of play whoever you want in the fact of when you construct your lineups, your decisions depend on the decisions that you previously made. So if you decide on a X stack, it's like, well, now, now that's going to constrain what you play in the rest of your lineup. If you wanted to play, for instance, if you wanted to play Demir Bird on this slate, if you wanted to, you, you had no reason to, but let's say you wanted to, that was just perfectly fine. He was like sub 1% owned. If you play him, do you have to worry about fading Dalvin Cook? No, you don't. If you do, you have to worry about uh, like, can you play uh, chalk uh, chalk uh, Jacoby Myers? Well, maybe you're playing the stack because it correlates with Bird. You're playing Newton Myers Bird, and then you're running it back with uh, Brandon Cooks, right? Because why not? Because that, and then you go, well, who should I play in the running back slots? Well, you already have a one percent owned guy, so you play Cook. Right? Who's the next best running back play? And you fill you fill in your lineup from there. But it all started from I want to play Demir Bird. I have nothing against you playing Demir Bird. But now build your lineup with that, like play whoever you want. As long as you're building the lineup in a plus EV manner, you could play any in NFL, a guy with one snap could get a hundred yard touchdown. Now it 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 rarely happens, but if you wanted to play the sixth wide receiver on some bullshit team that's gonna see one snap. And that's going to be literally, you're going to be in the millie with the only, you're, you're literally going to have the only lineup with that guy in it. There's a extremely, extremely, extremely small percent of the time where that guy puts up 60 fantasy points, right? Where like, he's, he's the high score of the slate by far. And you're literally the only one with him. So if you just played the chalk around him, you just won the millie maker. So yes, over the should you be doing to that extreme? No, but you could play who you could build the lineup that is plus EV with literally any player in the player pool. And so if you do want to play that player, there's a way to do it. You're right. I mean, thinking about just how much some of these small sample sizes matter, I, it's hard for me to think about these guys that you see at the top of the leaderboards and the top of the RG boards that play every single sport, like Osmo. You think Osmo is diving into the nuances of the pro football focus grades. Like the guy plays every single sport, as many lineups as he possibly can on every single day. And he's one of the best players in the world. Right, and you can describe that of every... I mean, it, it still comes down to like like looking... I I learned how to play by studying successful players, seemingly successful ones. I mean, I had no other 
way to do so of like, I see the same guys at the top of my lineups, top of the leaderboards. What are they doing? It's, is it, is it likely now out of like the top, if you take the top 50 GPP players, is it likely that there's a couple of people that just have a very small uh, window of getting incredibly lucky? Yes. Like that, they're, 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 people could go on, on, on sick runs playing minus EV lineups and getting there. And you may see them uh, portions of the leaderboard once in a while. Then they're not going to stay there. But overall, if you're looking at a multi-year sample size of the same names, 20, top 25 winning profit wise, not just where they finish, but profit. What it's more likely that whatever they're doing is optimal. Whatever it is, there it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it goes against what you believe or your worldview or anything. Is that if your goal is to make money, your your goal is to I'm going to do whatever's optimal, no matter what what reasoning behind it. I don't even need to know the reasoning behind it, but I'm going to try to deconstruct so I can replicate what they're doing. And what they're doing is not necessarily even player based. It's lineup-based and projection-based and correlation-based and leverage-based. So that's why I, 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 I always suggest to people, like, don't study the top players for who they played. Study the, pl- study the top players for how they played their lineups and what they did and compare it to what you did. So I take a look at, at this past slate and I see, you know, there was a petty theft, bare, basically faded Dalvin Cook in 150 lineups in the slant. I sleuth at you. Basically faded cook. No more I love you's basically faded cook. Osimo had 79% cook. Which one is right? They're both right. Because you take a look. Now I have to look at Osimo. How did he build his Dalvin Cook lineups? And I go, where where did he find leverage? Where did he find? Oh, he had a lot of, he had a lot of Robbie Anderson. He had Michael Tom, because he had Taysom Hill, Michael Thomas lineups. He had uh he had some uh I mean I'm taking a look through here. James Robinson who's under-owned. So I'm finding like, okay, if you're going to play a ton of Dalvin Cook, how do you make your lineups that you could win first place? Well, with Petty Theft, I mean, he's pl- he played uh, 52% Mike Davis in his lineups. He played 48% Tyler Boyd. He played 79% James Conner. So obviously, he was playing that Davis-Conner mid-tier running back type of build. Tyler Boyd as a one-off. And then, then I mean, mostly his stacks were his stacks. I mean, so it's like, okay. So people would, a, a normal person would, would, a normal, whatever, whatever you want to call it, an average player would go, well, who was right? Osmo played a ton of Cook and Petty Theft played almost none of him. So was Cook a good play? They'll look at the 29 points and go, well, it looks like Petty Theft was wrong, right? That's what, that's what most people, oh, it looks like Osmo was right and Petty Theft was wrong. I go, No. I said, they both were right. They both made lineups that had equity for first place. Petty Theft did it by fading the chalkiest player and Osimo did it by going double the field of the chalkiest player. So, but when you take a look at things in terms of plays and players, you never learn how to play DFS. You just try to learn how to predict the future, which from slate to slate is you're never going to get right. 
Oh, this is a really funny concept. I do projections for college football, which are available like in two spots in the entire internet. Your RG is fantastic ones, but people will like thank me for touting plays. Like they had a really good day. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. The model ran the projections. It told you who to play if you followed them blindly. Like you won 10K this slate. I lost 10K. We did. I did not tout anybody. And we clearly were not on the same plays. Right. No, I get that. I get that in DMs I, all the time of like, they'll listen oh, to my stream. You. Right, uh, they, they go. Uh, uh, thanks for or on showdown yesterday, Van Jefferson, the JJ, he for the uh, for right. He I call him the JJ. Uh, uh, he was in the he was in the winning uh, GPP lineup, whatever. And on the show that I did with cards uh, on RG, like people were like, oh look, you're the you're the JJ guy. Hey, because I mentioned because I I make fun. I go go yeah, maybe I'll make a the JJ line because like how do I get different on this slate? Like, doesn't mean I do it. I mean, I'm just finding, a, how do I get different? I have like a hundred different ways that I can. I just have to choose which ways that I want to do. And I throw out, uh, you know, maybe maybe you put a cheap Van uh, Jefferson Jr. in the lineup. Maybe you play multiple running backs together, even though they're negatively correlated, because they'll be less duped. Maybe you do, and I mention all of these, here are potential strategies to do. But it seemed like from confirmation bias perspective to people, they'll hear whatever they hear and go, go, oh, you probably made a million dollars because you mentioned Van Jefferson Jr. It's like, no, I'm just looking at my projections. I'm not, there's, 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 there's no calls. There's, I didn't call anything. I'm just like, I'm trying to build plus EV lineups. And if he happens to be in them, he happens to be in them. I, I like, like, it's hard to wrap your head around, like not predicting outcomes, but I'm, I'm, I'm not predicting any outcomes. I'm just looking for, is the probability of this lineup showing up at first place higher than other people's lineups? And if I can yeah, get they, th- them higher than other people's lineups, just let me continue doing this slate after slate and the EV will be realized at some point. The projections predict the outcomes and you know they're not accurate. They're accurate to a degree, but they're you, you can't just blindly play your projections and tournaments in these large field tournaments and know that you're going to win lineups it's absolutely the opposite of that so i think i mean people using the projections blindly like that obviously that's a mistake but it's like i'm not out here trying to predict the outcomes of the games neither are you the projections have done that for us now it's about trying to exploit the field knowing that projections are not 100 accurate right because people will look and go how do you play that guy like he doesn't project that well it's like well he's correlated with this other guy that does so i'm hoping that that the positive correlation of this game environment like makes up for the two-point hit in median. And I always mention median versus ceiling probability because medians are, who cares about medians in GPPs? If I hit my median on all my players, great, I have 160 points, I'm, I'm not winning. Like, I need ceiling probability. What's this ceiling probability? A lot of times they're related. The guys that have higher medians also have higher ceilings, yes, based on the, their price. But I mean, it, it like when you when you like oh, I can't play Tyreek Hill at sixty eight hundred or something. It's like, dude, Tyreek Hill could have a fifty point game like, in any matchup on any slate anywhere. Like if he's gonna come in two percent owned, I'm playing him. Like it doesn't matter what the projection tells me, median wise. If he's two percent owned, I will play him. If he's thirty percent owned, I will fade him. And then people's head explodes, going, so d- d- does that mean you think Tyreek Hill's gonna do well? I go, I don't care if he does well. I don't care at all. I cared. I fucking care nothing. It's the same thing as a coin flip of like, if you're going to give me two to, if you're going to be three to one on a coin flip, like I don't care if it's heads or tails. 
Like, like I'm, I'm getting, I'm, it's plus EV. I'm getting, I'm getting more payout for the probability. Is if I view uh, Tyreek Hill on that slate to have an 18% ceiling probability, and he's two percent owned, I play him. If he's 30% owned, I fade him. It, neither of those decisions have anything to do with what I think will happen on tomorrow's slate. All it is is what I what I think other people think will happen. Right? I'm that's that's all. Who are you playing today? I'm who tell me who you're playing, and then I'm gonna play different players. Like and people Yo. are like, how, how how do you do that? Woo! Head, heads explode and go like the no, this is game theory. This is how you play DFS. Yeah, I won't lie to you. I think something this year that's been really challenging for me is getting that ownership projection correct. And we have this week as a primary example. It's not a huge difference in the projected ownership that, you know, I was anticipating Taysom Hill coming out, but I definitely did thought I thought Taysom Hill was going to come in higher own than he did. And this has happened a couple times. I think well, what was that Jamal Williams chalk weeks? Like you and Eric talked about this a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. I thought Jamal Williams was gonna come in at like 50, 60 percent, and he comes in at like 30 in the in like the milli, and I'm like, what happened there? Yeah, as uh, last year, Mark Ingram, he came in way over him. There's countless examples of this. That's something that I've been struggling particularly with and trying to figure out where the field is actually going to be has been a challenge for me this year. Right, but that's to me, that's part of the skill. To me, yeah. that to me, that's that's the game. And it's changed. I, I, I feel that this year it's changed. Like how do you think it's changed? So I think it depends on the dollar amount, the size of the tournament. I, of course, I think the smaller field tournaments, some of those where you maybe we'll see Jamal Williams come in like 30% owned on the week he's supposed to be chalk. If you go up to high dollar tournaments, he'll be like 60, 70% owned. So I, I think adjusting for your actual field who is in the tournament is is going to be big i think eating some chalk in some of the the larger field tournaments if you know like jamal williams comes in as a 4k running back and he's supposed to be 60 percent owned and he comes in at 30 percent owned it's a much different story than a 70 percent jamal williams in like a 100 man tournament right and that's why i i tend in my in my spy lineups in my you know i mean they're not like small small fields i mean these fields are still like three four thousand like yeah. I'm more likely to to fade a Dalvin Cook. I'm more likely because I know because the ownership is going to be higher. I get I gain more relative value by fading than I would in the large field contest, which seems counter to what most people think and go, well, it's a four hundred thousand entry contest, so let me fade the chalkiest guy. It's like, well, the chalkiest guy is still actually underowned. Like a lot of times that happens, especially NBA, that happens all the time. Where, I mean, look, look on FanDuel. Look on FanDuel this past Sunday. Taysom Hill in like the large field, like $4, whatever, GPP, was like 66% owned. Like, he should have, his efficient ownership was probably 92%. Like, somewhere in that range. So there are people out there going, uh, I'm going to fade Taysom Hill for leverage. Because he's the chalkiest player on the slate. Yeah, he was the chalkiest player on the slate. But 66% is still egregiously underowned that you actually gain you actually gain more relative value by playing him than by fading him. Yeah, this is probably a challenge for me coming from college football. Conversely to me, I think having a skill, being able to think about different types of slates in different ways and look for the ways that they may be unique. College football is a wild, wild west. There are not ownership projections. It is based wildly on feel, and we're dealing with a format that has 130 teams and sometimes the team's on the slate. Sometimes they're not going to be on the slate for another six weeks. 
A lot of stuff changes in that six weeks. Boom, they pop back up. You have a couple days to prepare because the slate doesn't come out typically till Tuesday or Wednesday. So you have to re-familiarize yourself with these teams. There's an information edge. And just with no ownership projections, you can get a little more efficient just by playing what the projections tell you. You're not going to end up having to you know, gain as much leverage just because the field is not efficient with what they're running out there anyway. But as far as bringing that over to NFL, perhaps that is unlike the the roster construction thing, maybe where I need to do a little bit of work with just the raw ownership projections in NFL. Right. I mean, I look at, at, at RG ownership. I look at ownership around the industry. Uh, I also put my own feel on it. I just go based on what I'm hearing this week and seeing in places. Cause I read, I also read like casual articles, you know, CBS or whatever, you know, put out, you know, I'm not, it's not like I'm reading. I'm just like going, okay, what are people talking about? Uh, I can look at, I, I can look at a number and go, uh, that, that's, it, it, my RG projects them to be a uh, 9% on. And I go, nah, that's going to be 16. Like I, I like, I, I just, I, in my, like, it's not going to be nine. It's going to be, maybe it ends up being 14, but it's like, I, I, I just, I just know that based on the construction and based on what I'm seeing, like, and then I have to think in my head going, well, if he, if that, if this ownership is going to go up, how does it affect all the other players in here? It's like, well, RG's projecting <coughs> this guy to be X, but you can't fit in that guy if you're going to play the other guy. So it's going to be a lower projection. So like you kind of do that in your head uh, and the more experience that you get doing that, and especially in liquid markets, like you mentioned with college football, it's, it's a not, not, it's nowhere near as liquid of a market as, as NFL, because, you know, NFL, we have all these contests and all these people playing uh, college football is more like similar to, to me with soccer. Like, you know, I play soccer is not a very liquid market. So like that, whatever, there's no, no one really does ownership projections. I know RG, we, we, we have ownership projections for soccer, but the likelihood of them being act more accurate than NFL or NBA is, is it's going to be more variant because like, there's just not, there's, there's not a big enough market where like this one guy putting in 50 extra lineups into a soccer GPP could swing ownership on a player by five to 10% because the contests are so small. So if one guy just said, screw it, I'm going all in on this guy. And you come in like, why did he come in at 14% owned? I thought he would be like 2% owned. It's like, Hey, yeah, I guess this, these three guys that put in 150 entries, you know, they, they like, they like that guy. And that, that swings everything. NFL, even if you did that, the contests are so big that you're not, you're going to swing it by 0.02 points. So what does it matter? Yeah, you're right. I, I think in NFL too, you're starting to get a sharper market. And I, I don't think this is the case in the Millie or, you know, the contest below $5, but in some of your larger fields, I think sometimes to your point, like on FanDuel, some people are like, all right, I'm not going to play Taysom Hill for leverage. And then you end up seeing a guy maybe on accident or maybe just because you you know they think they're gaining more leverage than they actually are they they fade a play who projects really well and then they come in under own compared to what you might expect it's probably more of a high dollar situation than anything like my 33 dollar tournament where i ran the five max i didn't get in a ton of volume in nfl this week just a, a busy week with college football but in that 33 dollar five entry max it's a little north of eight thousand entries Taysom hill comes in at 16.4 percent ownership that's lower than i thought but this is a very sharp field and scrolling through the leaderboards i'm seeing a lot of names i recognize and clicking on a lot of their lineups a lot of them do not have Taysom hill right i mean i looked through results db and like playing Taysom hill amongst the the, the sharper players was that was the contrarian route yeah like, I, that's like, everything like, i saw too right that like to to me 
Like, that's why I, I'm using these terms. Like, because we, I don't think in terms of players of, well, a lot of the, a lot of the top quote, top 50, whatever, didn't play much Taysom Hill, but several people did. But those people did probably because they, they're doing it to be contrarian. They're building lineups that way and trying to get different elsewhere. So it's not a matter of who was right and who was wrong on a player. It's how do you build lineups with that player that can still be different and plus EV in the contest that you're in. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that 100%. For me, I didn't end up getting there and it caused me to go back and rethink things a little bit. Right. Well, we should always be rethinking, always be learning. I'm always looking through going, uh, you know, what are people doing? Is that successful? Going back. I mean, look, many people don't go into ResultsDB. You should. Rotogrinders.com slash ResultsDB for DraftKings. Uh, go back to your, your optimizer of choice, your projections of choice. And the day after, I mean, like I said, I ran naked Taysom Hill lineups through my projections just to see, like, did I just did I just fuck up by not like not even considering this? And I saw that yeah, yeah, maybe if I saw this, maybe maybe I still maybe I would have played out of 120 lineups, maybe I would have played 10 naked Taysom lineups and try to build some of those. But I mean, I knew that after the fact. So what I know Thanksgiving is coming up and people are like, oh, okay, we need to look at the three game slate. Like when, when people, 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 Matt, people text me and people on, on Discord are like, so what do you think? Like, obviously this slate is a little bit different because Thursday's coming up quickly. But like on a normal, normal, it's like, you know, Tuesday. It's like, so what do you, what do you like on Sunday? It's like, dude, it's Tuesday. It's fucking Tuesday. I, what the fuck? I barely know who's on the slate. I'm still looking Monday and Tuesday. I'm still looking at Sunday's past slate, seeing what I could learn and glean. Even if I get a nugget, even to get some, am I not considering this enough? Should I, but should I like that? And then my big thing this past week was the naked quarterback going, I don't think I consider this enough. And the past couple of weeks was, was the running back variance of how are sharper players dealing with this running back variance? Are they, are they playing a wider Amount of running backs? Are they playing smaller amounts of run? I mean, are are they playing wide receiver flex? Who is the who are the people that are playing wide receiver flex more than others? And I want to see these trends amongst people that have proven over a very long sample size of being profitable, winning players. And maybe there's something that I pick up before they do. Maybe it's maybe and maybe I'm completely fucking wrong. I don't know yet. But once once I start seeing. Like, I'm going to try doing this. I think this is the right way. I see every so often, it's like, oh, okay, there. Okay, now a couple of more players are playing a lot more wide receiver flex lineups. And now in the next week, a lot more wide receiver flex lineups. And a lot more, and like, okay, I think I was on that trend earlier than others. But like, the, the, the field's going to be efficient. The market is going to, it's survival of the fittest out there. So like, you know, we're all putting our money on the line if you have losing strategies, like you're good, you're just you're. I'm not going to find you in results DB anymore because you don't have any money left, right? So the people with money left are the, typically the ones that that you know it's it's that's the selection bias of what do they do that you don't, and even if you don't understand it, it's more likely that they're right than than you are. This research is, I, I can't stress how important it is. You, obviously, it's a huge part of your process. It's a huge part of mine, too. It's how I spend the early parts of my week as well. Primarily in a sport like college football, we want to use like last week, maybe it was two weeks ago for an example. 
two guys that work for RG, PSU and Fear My Turtle. They're two of they're probably the two best college football players on the planet. So I mean, I got straight up flamed on a Thursday night. Lost a couple thousand dollars, and I go and I look at my lineups between these these two guys. We have the same exact lineup for a two v two, but it's not a two v two I even like remotely considered. And I know our projections aren't that different, so. I, I just go back and it makes me think about the slate in a little different way. Like, why did they consider this? How how come I didn't consider this? And it obviously, it's a, a small sample, but it drastically affected our results. Right. And then the more and more you do that, the more and more you you should see it in your results. That you, you're you're more consistently, you know, making the, the correct or plus EV choices. And that's kind of the point of the course. The point of the course, if you take the theory of D, DFS course... 15 hours, theoryofdfs.com. It's not meant for you to like, I'm going to listen to once and then throw it away. And then all of a sudden, you know, all the, oh, I know everything. Now I'm turning into a winning player. It's like, no, it, it, you have to start implementing these concepts. And sometimes with those levers, you're like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go too far on this slate, or I'm not going to go far enough on that slate. And I'm, and I'm, but at least understand, recognizing the concepts when you study other players' lineups. Then you could start seeing of like, well, why didn't they play this guy? Oh, because they went this way. Oh, okay. They didn't succeed that way. They fucking lost. But I see what they were thinking. I see what this player was thinking. And then you go back to the course again and you re-listen to it, you know, a month later and go, is there anything that I'm not doing enough of? Yeah. Is there anything I'm, I, I'm not, I, I'm not implementing enough of if, am I, am I thinking in terms too hard rules? I cannot do this thing. It's like, no, no, it's all, it depends. There's all nuance there. And then you start seeing slates differently. And then you get into NBA or MLB or other sports and you go, how can I convey the winning strategies that I'm using in one sport? Now, how does this impact this other sport? How do the levers work here? Because the players interact differently in NBA versus NFL, in MLB versus uh, college basketball or golf or MMA or something like that. So it's 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 not just like, I, yes, I studied players, but like, okay, what are the concepts? And a lot of the concepts, you know, I took from poker because it's a very similar type of thinking. The only difference is that in poker, the probabilities are mostly fixed. There's only 52 cards in the deck. Like you could like estimate, you know, the chances of this card coming out versus that player having it in their hand versus, you know, the hand ranges that they'd make these actions you're putting all these kind of variables together, but like the cards still stay the way that they are. The players, like the outcomes of players aren't like the seven of hearts. Like there's only, there's only, there's only four sevens in the deck. There's not going to be a poker hand where I think this is the deck where there's going to be nine sevens in it. So like, like if I have a seven in my hand, I'm more likely to win like that, that there's just more variables to it. So the key to getting better, to being a profitable player you have to, to me, Matt, I think you have to enjoy, I don't want to say that you have to enjoy the process or enjoy the journey more than anything else, but I think it's it's more to the fact that, like, I'm putting my money on the line to to win at this. So I have an, the incentive to, like, not slack off. Like, I'm, go, I'm, I'm going to be playing several thousands of dollars per slate, and people are going to get better. The games now in 2020 are dramatically different than they were in 2015 and way dramatically than they were in like 2011. 
And I'm expecting in 2025, we'll look back at 2020 going, can you, can you, you remember when they were that soft in 2020? And now we're looking like going, wow, like these games are getting much sharper. They're going to get sharper five years from now. So if you're, if you're not, if you're not starting your process and, and starting at a winning level currently, like five years from now, like you're going to be left behind. Like you have to constantly adapt and learn then new edges will come up and new con- concepts will come out and they'll be overused. And then now the leverage will be to underuse them, right? We may see at some point 10 years from now in baseball and MLB DFS where so many people stack 5-3 that it becomes negative EV. That's like, it's over-correlated and now like the, the mishmash lineups actually show a profit more often. So like, like, but until you understand those concepts, you would never be able to study other players and know. You would never know what the trends are because you have no baseline of knowledge other than, well, I guess they all thought Justin Jefferson was a good play. Like, you don't learn anything by that because next slate, Justin Jefferson isn't going to be on. They're going to be playing a different team. He's going to be a different price. It's going to be a different context of a slate. So knowing that, oh, they picked Justin Jefferson the last slate, like, it doesn't fucking do you anything. Yeah, this is a game. It's changing year over year because it's a game. It's not like you you can be a good NFL evaluator and boom, you're a good player. You're profitable for the rest of your DFS career. The game is constantly changing because it is a game. And I think that's lost a lot on probably just casuals. I don't know, maybe even a few like smaller time serious players as well, but it's not knowing football. Probably knowing football gives you some sort of an edge, but at the same time, those aren't the concepts you should be focusing on. And your course is fantastic. I've listened to it myself, but you know, like me personally, it's a huge joke around the Osmo like Slack channel and even on some of our streams now. But I don't even have a fucking TV in here in <laughs> <Right>. my apartment. <laughs> right. You're you're waking up at four in the morning with your tuna. So, you know, this, you know, this shtick that's uh, become public on the Osmo airwaves. Yeah. But I don't have it. There's no TV in this apartment. I don't watch any football, at least not unless I'm with like friends or something. I, if I'm here by myself, that's not what I'm doing. What are you doing by yourself? Oh, man, it's uh, it's been a long long content grind this year so the college football stuff we've taken on a lot a lot of that and it's it's been really fun but you know i say i feel like college football is just such an underserved market so you know we're, we're talking about like life edges here maybe i think for me personally you talk about like spending a lot of the time doing the research for like nfl everyone's providing it with college football no one's doing it so i do try to spend a lot of time like looking into the nuances of college football to try to provide that content because it's underserved and where could where, tell people where can they find that content yeah so if you just follow me on twitter at matt underscore Kajeski, you can find everything there i have a youtube myself it's linked in the description of my twitter right and i'll, I'll put the link to, to all your stuff uh in the youtube subscription and users whatever description hit the thumbs up button i i never i always have to say that hit the th- hit stuff on the screen oh it's crucial man right. huge for engagement right on, on youtube uh if you're if, subscribe on itunes if you're not subscribed there so, uh, so Matt, uh, that, thanks for coming on. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you helped me a bit on, uh, you know, maybe, maybe next year getting into college football and, uh, cause it, it, it it's going to be kind of, well, it depends on, it's hard for me to just play multiple sports on the same days at different, like I, it's for me, I think I'm leaving money on the table, but it could be that I don't play it well enough because I have too much going on because I'm trying to play soccer and then I'm trying to play NBA every day and then NFL on something like like I almost feel like like maybe 
I'm not leaving money on the table. Maybe I'm actually saving money by not Man, like, spreading myself out. I hear you. This That's why I ran 17 lineups on Sunday. I typically like to build 150, but I, it's a, I've run into the dis, this year a couple times. I've gone back and looked at my results, and I'm just like, come up with things that, you know, you, you find mistakes sometimes in your lineups if you're spreading yourself too thin. And I've, I've definitely found some mistakes in my lineups this year, and it certainly cost me some money. So rather than, you know, like trying to find extra time, not sleeping as much, I've scaled down my volume during certain weeks, and it's helped a lot. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if you're playing an NFL slate and you play 17 lineups, it's there were 17 different lineups in different tournaments, and I'm fine with that on the certain weeks. Right, and because people play single entry, people play three max. It's not about the number of lineups. I mean, for, for you, you, you spend your time doing your college football research, eating your tuna, and then every once in a while, you got to do your your workout fleets, right? You got you got to do the fleets on Twitter, right? Yeah, I don't know everything about the fleets yet. We're trying to get into it. I decided to try to show some people my life outside of these college football NFL slates, which it you know turns out is pretty boring when you're living by yourself during a pandemic in Milwaukee. <laughs> Well, you could follow you could follow Matt Matt underscore Kajeski on Twitter. Obviously, you could follow me at Blender HD on Twitter. Uh, go to theoryofdfs.com. Take the fifteen hour audio DFS masterclass, and uh, and uh, we'll we'll have some more episodes uh, uh, coming out throughout the holiday period. We'll get into some NBA stuff. I mean, this will even after NFL season, this will still come out at least once a week. I will still be doing live streams. I uh, just got word that uh, uh, starting in January, uh, 11 a.m. every day, Monday through Friday, I will be doing uh, the, the, the DFS pregame show, which is kind of a look like similar way of like we discuss strategy in the context of like the previous slate and then talk about the next slate in generalities, especially in NBA, where 11 in the morning means nothing. By 4 o'clock, everything flips on its head because... People's out. This guy's in. Whatever, and then answer your your, your questions in the, in the YouTube chat. So so you could subscribe to the Roto Grinders YouTube channel over there for that. Subscribe to Matt's channel. Just hit just you know what you do on YouTube. Just close your eyes and hit all the. And if you're on this video, just if there's any links or any type of buttons that you could click, just click them all. Just click them all. Just just like uh, just like what people say about 150 lineups. You can't lose, right? If you click on them all. You can't possibly lose.